Hello and welcome everyone to the North Davis Podcast, where we have conversations about faith in Jesus, what's going on in our lives, the world around us, and how those things all interact. I'm your host and friendly neighborhood youth minister, Chris. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Hey, North Davis, Chris here coming at you with another episode of the ND Pod. Thanks for being here. Hope you'll share it with other members. You can use the podcast app uh, to share it. You can share the link on the webpage that has the podcast episode on it as well. Uh, be sharing it with your loved ones. Be sharing it with other church members that haven't listened to it yet. Uh, I'd love to see that listenership climb as we uh, enjoy having these conversations. Today, it's an interview with another one of our shepherds. We heard from Jim Hobby several weeks ago, and this week it's with Jamie Bain. Uh, a quick editing note, as around the 1430 mark, you will hear a little bit of what sounds like a disjointed comment from Jamie, and that's because of editing. Uh, in light of his work with Lockheed Martin and a specific contract he was mentioning, he wanted me to take out some of the the audio. Uh, it's one of those, uh, he could tell me, but he'd have to kill me sort of things. And so you'll hear that hiccup, but uh, enjoy this interview. Hey, North Davis, welcome back to the ND Pod. It is episode 10, if memory serves, and in the studio, which as you know by now doubles as my office, this morning we have <laughs> Jamie Bain, one of your shepherds. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for spending some time with me this morning. Good morning, Chris. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, it feels like it transforms into almost like what I imagine a radio studio, if you've ever seen the inside of one. I was thinking that, actually. Yeah, yeah I feel like if I could get a few more like monitors and an actual soundboard in here, which Brett, I guess, has in his office. We should really kick him out and use his office. Yeah, but um, then we'd have to have that glass wall with the engineer on the other side. Right. Yeah, if, if ever we get to the point where we're just super official, uh, that's what I think we would do is, is have a legitimate engineer. Somebody who holds their headphones, <laughs> but just one headphone over the ear, you know, and gives you a thumbs up. Uh, so I don't know if we're the, at that level. Uh, maybe we'll get sponsors at some point, and that would be really cool. Uh, but... Uh, Anyway, um, we've just been having conversations with, started with interviewing our seniors and letting folks get to know them a little bit. Uh, we've interviewed Jim Hobby, uh, Brett and I have had conversations, Sarah and I have had conversations. Uh, so today it's just highlighting you a little bit and getting to know you a little bit more. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your eyebrows raised. That's something, uh, listeners of course can't see, but yeah, that's exciting. Um, You've been in Arlington a while, if memory serves. I've been in Arlington ever since 1978. Okay, yeah. So, grew up here, essentially? Well, we we moved here within a month after high school graduation for me. Oh, okay. So, where was life before that, then? Oh, man, all over. <laughs> okay. Was it a military family or a ministry I, family? I was born into a military family, okay. yes. Um, but they're not the ones that moved us around. I was oh. born on a military base out uh -huh. in California. Oh, okay. Then, fellow Californian. Yeah. Um, and then my dad went to work for Xerox while we were living in Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, okay. I have family in Huntsville. Oh, good place. Yeah. Okay. I, I have very fond memories of Huntsville. Yeah. But then Xerox moved us all over the place, including uh, Rochester, New York. Oh, or interesting. technically Fairport, New York. That's how I know uh, Jim Boyla's. Um, she graduated from the high school I graduated from a couple of years behind me. Okay. So I did, I did not know them up there. In New York. Yeah. Small world. Small world. <laughs> but didn't meet her until down here. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. So moved all over, but then after high school, down here, mm -hmm. um, college. Here. 
Here. UTA. UTA. Okay. And then I know you just recently, congratulations again, retired from <laughs> a career at Lockheed Martin. Yes. How soon into your professional work were you there? Um, right away, or did you bounce around a few places first? No, that was really my entire career. Okay. Although I I spent... It took me a while to get to Lockheed, but that was my one job after college. Okay. So... So, well, how long's a while? What were you doing in the meantime? Um, school, married. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. of course. Family. Okay. So. Yes, and you and Stephanie have been married for how long now? Thirty-nine years. Thirty-nine. Wow. Okay. So quick now math. I, is I that didn't 80? mean that to sound forlorn. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Thirty-nine years. Um, so eighty-two. Is that? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Very good. My parents were married in eighty-four, so I was. In my head, I was like, they've been married, I think, 37. So, yeah, beautiful. Uh, two kids, of course. Most yep. of our listeners, I imagine, uh, know, of right. course, your boys. Um, one is uh, still in town, right? Yeah, Kyle's still in town. Kyle's still in here. town, and Kevin is, is in Garland. In Garland, yes. I was going to say Dallas. It's yeah. Dallas-ish, right. Most of our listeners probably know where Garland is. Yes, right. right. He's at... Um, Highland oh, Oaks. Oh, now I'm in a blank. Thank you. Highland Oaks. Yes. Uh, Kevin and I crossed paths at Kadish, and uh, right. we're actually going to have lunch later this week. So, oh, cool. Um, Kevin was one of my, we've probably had this conversation, Kevin was one of my residents one year, and then we worked in Res Life together. So, uh, yes, Kevin I, was, I remember that. Yeah, Kevin was a good buddy uh, at ACU, and we were in uh, TXA together as well. Uh, right. The small group with Randy Harris. So. I uh, really have a lot of appreciation for Kevin. Uh, so you have been in Arlington for a long while, but how about as far as North Davis? Now, of course, this building was lo- built in 86, I want to say, or 87. That'd be about right, yeah. And before that, it was, was that when it was Randall Mill or was that? It was Randall it was Mill, and before that, it was Abram Street. A, right. So at what point during our church's journey did you join? Come here. Yes. <laughs> okay, I've visited the Randall Mill building a couple of times while I was in college. Okay. Um, you know, through the Bible chair, which of course is always sponsored through Randall Mill, North okay, Davis. Okay, right, right. Um, so at the time, though, I was actually, Stephanie and I were members over at Woodland West. Oh, yeah. But then uh, towards the end of college, while I was president at the Bible chair, I decided, you know, if North Davis is really the key sponsor to the Bible chair. I ought, I ought to be over there more often. Okay. So we started visiting more, and it and it stuck. <laughs> so we started attending here. Yeah. So just kind of a natural affinity and relationship through the Bible chair at UTA. And yes. Felt the transition. Okay. And so that would have been what year? Oh, around um, 88. 88, okay. 80, 85 to 88, somewhere yeah. there. okay. So just so as Randall Mill was thinking about coming over here, yeah. becoming North Davis, okay, and been members uh, ever since. You became an elder then after many years of membership. How long have you been an elder now? I've been an elder for 18 years. 18, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I came in as, along with uh, Rodney Waller and okay. Bill Dismuke. Okay, very good. So you would have been a comparatively younger man at the time then yes in your late 30s uh i think i was 40 low low 40s i might have been 40 
Okay. Yeah. So were you, I didn't ask this earlier, were you raised in the Church of Christ as you bounced around? Yes, I was. Okay, so um, you were raised Church of Christ, and I saw presumably with elders leading the churches oh, you were yes. part of. So what was your, as a, as a child, teenager, younger man, what was your uh, perception of elders growing up? Did you ever imagine yourself being one? No, but my mother and my grandmother did. Really? So, yes. like, as a child, they told you, they kind of spoke that over you? or uh, Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Especially my grandmother. Okay. And that, that's on my, my maternal side. Okay. My, yeah. my paternal side was was a different tradition. Okay. But it was, it was my mother's side of the family that really had the biggest uh, influence on me. Yeah. And, yes, my grandmother and a couple of... Um, Adoptive mothers <laughs> that I grew up with sure. all figured uh, and told me often that I was going to be either a preacher or an elder. Okay. So, Did the preacher part ever call to you at all? Or was that something of interest? Mm, not as a profession, no. Okay. I mean, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I admire preachers. I got yeah. a lot of... <laughs> that sounds good. Some of my best friends are preachers. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But um but no, but I actually I like becoming an elder. I like that role. Okay. What is it about the role that you feel like you know, you feel drawn to or what is it that you like? Um building people up, okay. encouraging people. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, so you talked about not being, <laughs> feeling the call to ministry vocationally, uh, perhaps, um, but then uh, instead you chose a career at Lockheed doing, um, forgive me, I don't know exactly, what was it, an engineer? <laughs> what, what was I was an role? engineer, yes. Okay. I was a computer science engineer by degree mm-hmm. and mechanical aerospace by practice. Okay. Fortunately, UTA, when, they, when you get an engineering degree there, yeah. you're an engineer. Okay, so kind of a jack-of-all-trades type yes. engineer. Okay. So what was your day-to-day like by the end of your career at Lockheed doing aerospace engineer stuff? But when I retired, I was a one-man propulsion shop. As propulsion far as shop. Okay. Yes. I handled everything that had to do with the propulsion system on the F-16. Oh, okay. Yeah. Everything from the throttle grip in the pilot's hand oh, interesting. to the uh, engine-related warning system that yeah. up on the HUD uh-huh. to the throttle cable all the way back to the engine mounts that holds the engine in place. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, all of it. Yeah. That's and, fascinating. The and then the, and the, and the troubleshooting. I I spent a lot of time on the phone and email with well, yeah, master sergeants all, around the world. You have to troubleshoot yeah. it all. Yes. <laughs> that always stands to reason. <laughs> the uh, the F-16 was one of my favorite planes. Growing up, I thought about you know being a pilot potentially. And uh, my dad had a lot of... Uh, flight simulator games and mm-hmm. we had a you know a throttle and a joystick and uh, we even flirted with the idea of getting uh, ru- rudder pedals that you could yeah. plug into the cpu you know right uh, so yeah we we played a lot of flight simulators and usaf and um, just microsoft flight simulator flying civilian aircraft and uh, anyway so I, I find that fascinating yeah Did i got you, to fly the real simulator at lockheed 
Oh, really? So yeah. one of the you know two million dollar you know real time. Okay, mm-hmm. and was it a simulator for the F sixteen or do they have? Oh yeah, that was the entire purpose. It was okay. Was um, it was for one? It was specifically for one of our customers, which I won't tell you which one. Yeah, right. Or you'd have to kill me, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, and I don't even want to hurt you. So. Yes. No, I could appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. In order in order to do a couple of tasks, I had to get very familiar with the flight test profile. So I had to go fly in simulator. To learn how to revise flight test for that customer. Okay, so that makes sense to me logistically and logically that that would be your responsibility. But I don't assume that all engineers know how to fly planes. No. <laughs> so, so <laughs> what did you get any kind of training, or did you have somebody in the headset kind of walking you through yes. some of the things? Okay. Yes, for a while. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had I had some really good support, and okay. they were in my, in my ear, and they yeah. go, "No, don't do that." <laughs> okay, reboot. That crashes the plane. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, how many uh, simulated uh, crashes have you caused? Um, about four. <laughs> that feels like not that bad for somebody not that's that not bad. a pilot. Well, after a while, I learned to if it started like is it began to look like it was going to go bad. I could reach over and just hit the reboot button. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You can just prevent the crash before it happens. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, wow, that's that's really interesting. I would love to get in one of those simulators one day. They're expensive. They're very right expensive. Now. So, do you? This is just. I'm going to go off on a nerd tangent because again, I, I think uh, especially fighter aircraft are fascinating. Um, is a simulator built to exclusively represent a single craft, or can you load programs in to run? simulations for multiple aircraft okay sim- the simulator itself is for a single aircraft okay uh, we just did f-16 and the one i flew was for a specific model of f-16 for a specific customer right it was a very special case yeah now the f-16 itself one of the reasons why it's the most popular fighter aircraft in the world is yeah. because the actual aircraft can be reconfigured to for multiple models i saw an f-16 flying overhead and someone goes what kind of plane is that (laughs) and somebody else goes well is that a airliner or is that no no it's not an airliner somebody saw an f-16 and thought it might be an airliner yeah well it was was pretty way up there okay way up in the sky but i knew the profile yeah as soon as i looked at it it does have a fairly unique yes profile yes yeah now when I think about the F-16, I think of the name the the Falcon or the Fighting Falcon. Is right. that still how it's referred to, despite its many different variations um, of models? Yes. Although each each customer, each Air Force has, I've learned, has their own nickname for it. Okay, so that's a U.S. nickname of the craft. Actually, no. That's that's the um, industry name for it. Oh, Falcon. interesting. Okay, USAF so calls it the Viper. Interesting. Okay, that's funny. My dad in the you know aforementioned flight simulators, mm-hmm. my dad's call sign was always Viper. You know, when you get to write your own call sign. Uh, so I don't know if that was a Top Gun reference or if he knew that that's what the Air Force refers to it as. So the industry called it the Falcon or the mm-hmm. Fighting Falcon. Interesting. Okay, fascinating. So like the F twenty two is the Raptor. Correct. Is that the industry or the Air Force? That's the industry. 
Interesting. Okay, so I probably don't even know that. I don't. Even, I don't think I know the, the Air Force's nickname yeah. for the rap. Okay, I could probably find it. Right. I, I yeah. Have, I have places I can go look. Yeah, like I know you know like the B one B is the Lancer, the big old bomber. Right. right. B two Spirit. I'm wondering how many right. how many of these that I know are the just the industry nicknames. Oh yeah. Pretty much everything you know is the industry name. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, being a non-Air Force person. My uh, uncle flew helicopters in the Air Force for a great many years, uh-uh. maybe 20-something. Retired as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, I want to say. My mom would know, and I'm sure she'll listen to this. Uh, we went to his retirement party, and he flew, golly, I don't remember. I'm sure all kinds of helicopters. He graduated <laughs> from the Air Force Academy. Um, he just missed... Uh, very thankful. Just missed the Vietnam War uh-huh. by a few very months. Good, Graduated yeah. kind of right after the war was concluded. Um, so I guess you weren't flying Blackhawks at that point. I don't know Hueys and I, I don't know what all yeah. helicopters Vietnam were flying at that was, point. Vietnam era was a Huey and a Chinook. Chinooks were around then. The yeah. big old transport helicopters. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right on. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't remember. Uh, he'll uh, he'll be irritated with me because <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> what he flew, but. Interesting. Well, I'm sure I could spend an hour talking to you just about engineering and aircraft, but uh, kind of returning back to the uh, the church aspect, and you specifically said that um, for you, the thing to love the most about eldering was building people up. Right. Um, are there any particular stories or uh, situations or uh, testimonies that come to mind when you think about 18 years of eldering where you've had a particularly... Um, Powerful experience getting to be the hands and feet of Jesus, building somebody up. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Too too many to mention. Yeah, right. um, As as I've told people, when when you're an elder, you will hear and be part of all types of stories. Mm -hmm. Some will make your heart swell and some will break your heart. Right. And, And I've been part of both. Yeah. Um. Just very recently, um, uh, talking with someone about basically some pre-marriage counseling, mm-hmm. you know, so that that was very heartwarming. <laughs> but uh, a lot of those type talks will um, expand, right? And so that to me, that's very encouraging. Anytime I can encourage somebody else in their walk with Jesus, that that encourages me also. Mm. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's that's by design too. You know, we're such communal creatures, and we wanna we wanna do life with people that are uh, on the same team as us. And so, just yes. even hearing somebody else's experience that may not even directly affect ours in any way is a is a boon and is an encouragement in and of itself. Um, yeah, that's really cool. One of the topics that's been on my mind a lot lately has been. Um, minister burnout Uh, and so like you said it's it's not vocational ministry that you're involved in but as you just said much of ministry does revolve around the reality that um, we participate in really encouraging stories and we also participate in very draining stories Mm -hmm. you know um, over the past couple years we've seen uh, Bill one of our other shepherds take a sabbatical Uh, Brett and Summer have both uh, reached seven years of service, and so Brett has taken, and Summer will soon take uh, a sabbatical. And this seems very uh, appropriate to me that we encourage our people uh, to take time for intentional spiritual renewal. But um, 18 years is a long time to be 
an elder, it, it can cause uh, a lot of gray hairs, I'm told. Uh, <laughs> 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 and you've got you've got your fair share. Um, what what are some of the rhythms that you found in your own spiritual life um, as an individual that you feel like have helped you continue to want to be an elder? Because um, I feel like after two decades, I mean, a lot of ministers, a lot of elders, they don't they don't make it that long, you know. Right. And that's not uh, to say that they did anything wrong, although it could be. Uh, but but for you, what what have you found has been something that, or, or multiple things that have been particularly life giving? Um, anytime I have a story where I know I made a positive difference mm-hmm. for someone, mm-hmm. that is life giving to me as well as to them. That is reaffirming. That is re-energizing. Um, so yeah, I I cling to those stories. I mm-hmm. um, I love to be in people's lives, not in an intrusive way, but as in an encouraging way. Right. And so yeah, that's that's what I that is my favorite part of being an elder. Yeah, yeah. I really, I think, kind of my analogous experience is thinking about experiences in ministry and you know anytime people ask me like what keeps you going um it really is those moments that you can point to and say it was so heartwarming and so uplifting just to watch you know somebody have a uh, a light come on uh, Mm. and they take a, a deeper step of faith uh or to have a student you know who's been dealing with something for a long time um you know, confess that and, and, and try to heal from it or, you know, whatever it is. And it's through nothing of your own doing besides being present, being invested in that person, trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And then, um, just watching and being a part of of their story, you know? Um, so I, I love that a lot. We have, we have one member here that, um, when they came and placed membership, they came to me and Stephanie said, do you remember us? And I said, look, I said, well, yeah. I said, but I get a feeling you were referring to something specific. And she was, yeah. She, and it, she related a story. And what it was was almost, almost 15 years ago when she was a college student, mm-hmm. she had been given the assignment. They were going around checking different congregations to see what, were their rhythms. Okay. And when she and her partner came to North Davis, it was on a Wednesday night, and and it just happened to be Stephanie and myself that greeted them and sat down and talked with them. And she said, that's why I'm here today, because of Mm. y'all spending time with with us then. Yeah. So, you know, that has stuck with them, and and it's like, you know, that moment, you kind of go, wow. Yeah. I feel like, too, there's so many people who have stories like that, and it seems so um, trivial, right? The fact that you would greet them and sit with them, you know. It it it's it required precious little effort on your part except to notice and to take initiative. Right. You know, um, but that made an impact that lasted well over a decade, you know, like... It's almost, I don't know if it's a, a commentary on, you know, how unwelcoming our society tends to be or, you know, wh- what it is that, that mm. spoke so strongly to, to this couple. 
Well, it's it's like um, I've read several times on the internet that you know heaven. When we when we get to heaven, there will be multiple instances of people saying, "I'm here because of you." Mm. It's like, what do you mean? Well, because one time you did this. Right. One time you did this. Yeah. And when Jesus himself said, you know, if you give someone a cup of water in my name, you're mm. not going to lose your reward, right? Yeah, yeah. Says, so there's all these things that we have no idea what real effect they're going to have on people. Right, right. Well, and I, I especially love, you know, the the rest of that passage is Jesus' response to the people who did those works, mm-hmm. who visit, you know, and because their response is, Lord, when did, I don't remember seeing. Yeah. You. When did we give you water or visit you in prison or clothe you? And his response is, you know, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. You know, it's it's almost as if, uh, you know, I, th- I think most of us raised in the church are keenly aware of all the bad things we do. We're pretty good at, <laughs> you know, we, we've been told quite readily that, you know, we're disgusting sinners and uh, even our righteousness is as rags, etc. Um, and there's a healthy point to understanding that we are broken people. Uh, but the, on the flip side, I, I really like this idea of being uh, in the presence of Jesus and him talking about all the good things that you did that you weren't even aware uh, of the impact you made for the kingdom. Right. You know, of Jesus walking you around and being like, you know, do you remember this guy? No. And, you know, well, he, you know, you did that one thing and then he joined a church and turned his life around and, you know, started paying more attention to his kids. And then, you know, that family flourished instead of splitting up. And then those kids you know, yes, you know, it's like the generational effects, exactly. right? Yeah, I mean, such such a powerful thing it is to to think about that. You know, and it's all those things that we're not even largely aware of. So that's yeah, that's a really beautiful picture. Uh, Eighteen years of eldering. Has there ever been a bigger challenge on your plate than eldering? Uh, and I'm using that as a verb. I, I hope <laughs> that's okay uh, for you grammar folks out there. Uh, has there ever been a bigger bigger challenge in your mind? to eldering than eldering during a uh, global pandemic? Mm. It's hard. It's hard to put challenges. Yeah, right. <laughs> hard to rank them. Hard to rank them because, yeah. you know, each one's different. Each one's kind of unique. Mm-hmm, each, mm-hmm. each one that burdens you, it's a different burden. Okay. That's but fair. I was thinking, you kind of prepped me for that question. I and did. so I was thinking about it. And it's like, yeah, it's it's a special challenge because um, so many of the rhythms we've gotten used mm-hmm. to have been interrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, just reaching out and hugging someone or putting putting your arm around someone, you we used to do that without even thinking about it. Right. And now. Uh, you better think about it. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. For a lot of people, they would rather you ask permission first. You yes. Know. Well, Stephanie and I went to a uh, large, um, not really arts and crafts fair. It's, it's uh, there's a show, Texas Country Reporter. Okay. And they put on a festival in Waxahachie. Yeah. Every year, and it was this last weekend. So Saturday, we went down there, mm-hmm. and we really went because there was one particular um, artisan we were going to meet. And as we talked with her, and uh, um, she and Stephanie had really hit it off. She mm-hmm. and I had had been 
uh, communicating through email and stuff for a while. But then she really met Stephanie for the first time. And after we concluded our our official business with each other, um, she turned to Stephanie. She goes, can I give you a hug? Hmm. And if you know Stephanie, she's like, of course. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, and so she gave Stephanie a hug, and she gave me one. And, and that was not something I looked I looked for at all in mm. that relationship. But it just, it was organic. It just grew out of our conversation, our discussions. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, we, we certainly have had a lot of regular rhythms and habits and everything broken. It's uh it's been weird. And I, I feel like, too, we're going to struggle to get back to a lot of them, even yeah. when we're well and truly on the other side of this thing. Um, so I, I'm very curious <laughs> for the course of the next year, you know, what things will go back to normal and what won't. You know, yep. I, I think about just how we question uh, even around the office where, you know, at least in the office, all of us uh, have been vaccinated. And mm-hmm. so we feel pretty confident about you know, being around each other and don't have a lot of concern there. Um, but every time, you know, I have a tickle in the throat or a slight cough or congestion, you know, used to be you would just go, eh, I just got a cold. And probably that's all it is. But, you know, we, we even question, well, should I be around people right now? And yeah, I feel like it used to yeah. be people would, yeah, unless you're dying, you should be at work. And now people <laughs> are like, uh, unless you will die if you don't get to work. Stay home, you know? Yeah. Um, and so there's uh, certain rhythms and whatnot that have changed. Some of them maybe even for the better. Uh, but, yeah, I'm just curious to see kind of what culturally we do uh, differently moving forward. I resisted that phrase, the new normal, Yeah. for quite a while. Yeah. But finally I had to realize, yeah, that's that phrase is 100% accurate. Yeah, it is, unfortunately. You know, it just yeah. is what it is. It's just, you know. Um, uh, adapt or die is kind of a phrase that, <laughs> that people have thrown around. You know, like w- change is always inevitable. You know, yeah. it's the only constant. And so this just happened to be something that uh, accelerated a lot of change and brought about it uh, change in a way that we weren't maybe ready for as much. Uh, I have a buddy that works at uh, PepsiCo uh, mm. in in Dallas area and talked about you know they're they're even thinking about cutting uh, their office space by fifty percent because they realize that they can have their employees work two and three days a week in the office, work from home other days, and so everybody can share a cubicle. Guess what? We just got 50% of our office overhead, and turns out uh, most adults, you give them a job to do and trust that they'll do it, and it turns out most humans go, yeah, I'll get that done, and we could, yep. you, we could be responsible for it. And people are going, oh, this work from home thing is not so scary. You know? Yeah, yeah. From some of my friends who are still working at Lockheed, yeah. you know, they've they've told me a lot of the same thing that right. you know, corp um, industry wide corporations are finding out that they can actually make do with fewer yeah. uh, employees on site. Right. So well, and not only make do, you know, I think about some of the reports and, and the research I read about uh, the European workforce um, is is typically given much more. Um, respite from work. They're given oh, more yes. vacation time. True. And, um, there's even a cap. I know I was uh, listening to my sister's father-in-law, I believe it was, talk about, and he works for a major airline. Um, I want to say American, but I don't remember if that's correct. Uh, but talked about they were trying to get a contract done with, I believe it was a French company. Um, and the contract 
fell through because it had a hard deadline and they had a work hours cap. And once it hit that cap, they were not legally permitted to work anymore. Mm. You know, and, and that's a whole other thing you could talk about as far as, you know, the government uh, having too much oversight on something like that. But, right. but yeah, you know, again, you, you have much more vacation given to employees and, and less of a work defining you kind of culture, generally speaking. And they have much happier employees. And all the research shows when your employees are happier, they're more productive. Right. Which is to say you can get more done in less time, right? Which so I'm kinda wondering if people are going, Hey, when my employees, you know, work from home a couple of days a week, um, they're less stressed and so they give me better work when they're here, things like that, you know. So I, I hope there could be some positive change as a result of that. Well, you know, we'll see. Um obviously yeah. two different cultures on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but I do think it's interesting. Interesting to think about. Um, you had shared that there was a particular thought that you had been dwelling on about uh, a young man named Eutychus, which is yes. maybe a name that um, most people don't know. I actually have a book from Dr. Heflin, who's an ACU professor I had. Um, no relation, same last name. Houston, called, right? Yeah, Houston, Houston exactly. Yeah, I met him. He wrote Good a guy. book called Teaching Eutychus, uh, which oh. is all about, um, we'll, we'll recount the story. Essentially, Eutychus is a young man in the book of Acts, mm -hmm. uh, and he is sitting in a window in, a window. in an upper room, uh, and he presumably gets bored and well, falls asleep. Well, G <laughs> well uh, Paul taught his sermon, ran on until midnight. Yes, so preachers everywhere, remember uh, that you got to let the people go to bed at a certain point. Um, or be very careful with your seat selection. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, it's like, you know, I think there's a reason we don't do Sunday night church anymore, and apparently it's, you know, because we be have that. this Eutychus young man. Uh, Houston's point in writing the book is, you know, teaching a generation of people that can be distracted easily and, and are bored with our teaching. Right. And so it's all about kind of being a more engaging teacher uh, than probably Paul was being as he just talked at people until uh, midnight and, and well <laughs> into the night. So so Eutychus falls asleep. And so right. I was asking you, you know, is there any particular word uh, that you would have for North Davis or something you wanted to encourage people with? Uh, and so you were talking about this young man who falls yeah. asleep, falls out of a window, um, dies from this fall. Right. And then. Paul and, and some of the other men go and, and pray yes. over this and, young man. Bring him back to life. He is brought back to life, yes. And then they all go in and break bread together. Yes, th so that's which, the, the which next I step. Which I take is not just a meal. I take their, their going in to observe the Lord's Supper. Yeah, as as was often done, and, and as we understand from the first century church, breaking bread, communion, was was it was a meal. It was a meal, yeah. Was, so they're around the table together. That's what we did together. for dinner time, yeah. yeah. Now, what's always struck me is I've always... Um, worked against the idea that communion should be this privatized little thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's kind of why I, I lament those little the hourglasses or, or right. the styrofoam wafer cup. Yeah, depending <laughs> you know. on which uh, communion supply you get. Yeah. Yes, because <laughs> we've we've started going back more privatized again. And, right. And and okay, there there are good sanitary reasons right now in a pandemic. To do that. Sure. Well, sanitary reasons and then numbers, you know. Yes. Uh, Paul's probably not meeting with 500 people at one time. Uh, yeah, definitely not. But, you know, the idea of, um, I always thought communion can be, should be more communal. Mm. You should be talking with people 
quietly in our settings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, while while you're doing this, right. I, I I love some of the faith traditions that as they um, take communion, they'll say, you know, may the Lord be with you, mm. the Spirit of Christ with you. Yeah, addressing one yes. another. You know, as as they pass the bread, the body of Christ, as they as they pass the cup. Yeah. You know, in the blood of Christ. Right, getting to talk. Right. Um, and now we're we're sort of backing away from that because we cause we're not passing trays anymore, and there's that little hourglass mm-hmm. that we have. So we're so we're becoming more privatized again. And the connection to Eutychus is is once he was raised back to life, and they go in the, and they're breaking bread. Imagine Eutychus sitting with his parents. I mean, they're they're taking the the Lord's Supper to commemorate Christ's resurrection, mm-hmm. but they've got resurrection sitting right there at the table mm-hmm. with them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Ima- imagine the mood. Right. Okay. Now, couldn't you imagine that across the tables another family and they would like look over and say, "Hey, hey, could y'all? Hey, I'm happy about your son." <laughs> Yeah, but could you keep it down a but bit, please? But this is communion time. Yeah, this Hush. is my Jesus and me time. Okay, mm, so yeah, Jesus and me time versus Jesus and us time. Exactly. So yeah, keep it down. So and I don't see that happening. Yeah. Or if it does, you've completely missed the reason that Luke and the Spirit wanted the Utica story recorded in Acts to begin with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's communion is a joyous time. Mm. and it's meant yeah. to be shared it is communal <laughs> right yeah i imagine joyous is not a word that most of our i'm thinking specifically of young people like eutychus you know <laughs> I, I don't think it's an adjective that any of our teenagers or our kiddos would use um somber is you know more the tone that we usually it have. was as i was growing up yeah and it wasn't until i really dug into the eutychus story where i said mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. this goes completely against everything i practiced as i was growing up yeah and i like this story better than the story i practiced growing up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i wonder if you know what it would look like to introduce more of a balance you know that if that if sometimes we you know uh, some of our communion thoughts are directed more towards the cross and jesus's mm-hmm. suffering and that tends to be a more somber thought um but resurrection is and should be a more joyous thought yeah. And something to be shared and something to be light about in a way, you know, of of um, celebration and thankfulness, um, like a Thanksgiving meal, you know, right? Yeah. Which we expect to be quite joyous and, and we share food and we share what we're grateful for, which a lot of times is what communion uh, is in our tradition, right? Which is... Should be anyway. Lord, yeah. thank you so much for what you've done for us, but then not... You know, thank you, Lord, that thou hast poured thyself out for <laughs> us, dirty sinners. And, and more like you're talking about, like, what if, you know, what if we had resurrection in our midst in the case of, of Eutychus? And yes. what are we really celebrating? Um, so that's a, that's a really cool idea. Um, on that note, ending with a non-serious question. Are you, uh, depending on the setting, again, maybe not practical for 500 people. Have you ever, and are you for... One cup. <laughs> you know, I, I, I actually, I, yeah, I pondered that. Um, yeah. 
I figure most people have not had a one cup experience. I I've never really had a one cup experience uh-huh. that I can recall. And um I'm not particularly for it <laughs> because I've seen people even before the pan- even before pandemic days uh-huh. would be sitting in the pews and and communion is getting ready to go around and I see a, you know wipe their nose <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah definitely not sanitary yes it's like okay I could be for I could be a one cupper if I managed to always sit where I was the first one that first got one to cup. touch it yeah <laughs> or maybe if uh, somebody else was handling it with gloves on maybe or yeah. Yeah. One cup, mini straws. <laughs> yeah, mini straw. There you go. Yeah, we one time did uh, communion at halftime during the Super Bowl in college, ah. which was the strangest setting ever. But it was like, hey, you know, we're not going to watch. It probably won't be that good anyway. Halftime show. Uh, and we're going to pause and just celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, just be thankful that we're here together. And uh, we we had one cup at uh, Randy's house, actually. Ah. And uh, I always thought, man, this is so weird. And I thought later, I was like, it's just weird because it's not what I'm used to. Not what we're used to. Right, which is, you know, so true of many of the things we do, right? Is yep. What is weird is simply because it's unusual to me. You know, that's that's all we're saying when we say weird. So. Well, yeah, if it's not something I usually do, then obviously it's weird. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and if it's weird... It's because I don't do it because it's wrong, probably. You know? Well, yeah, <laughs> because I would not consciously do something wrong. Right, because everything I do is right. and you know. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, good deal. Jamie, thanks again for your time, man. really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit, talking about airplanes especially, <laughs> uh, and getting your thoughts on eldering. Um, yep. Really appreciate it. Sure thing. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, enjoyed it. Okay. We will see you uh, two weeks from now, y'all, with an episode with Brett Morris.